While the rest of us will turn to Romans chapter 6, please. If you're in Romans 6, look at verse 14. This is where we ended last week. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And note that word dominion means reign or rulership. In fact, the word dominion comes from dominus, which no, it doesn't mean dominoes. Dominus means Lord. Uh, and whoever has dominion is, is the master. Whoever has dominion is the, the Lord, the, the ruler, the sovereign. Uh, these two chapters of Romans 5 and 6 are filled with references to dominion uh, type um, examples uh, Words like reign and rule and slavery and dominion itself. In fact, um, in addition to Romans 6.14, where it says, Sin shall not have dominion over you, uh, look at the back of your outline for a moment. There's a... To just kind of trace through the the issue of dominion and reign in the chapters of Romans 5 and 6, looking at the... uh, the left hand side the the negative things of dominion that we have seen so far in 514 we're told that death reigned 517 again death reigned 521 sin reigned in death chapter 6 verse 6 that we should no longer be slaves to sin death has no more dominion therefore do not let sin reign You were once slaves of sin, a slave to sin, and slaves of uncleanness and lawlessness, but you have been set free from sin. Then on the the right-hand column, the more positive uh, aspects of dominion or rule, uh, chapter 5, verse 17, righteousness will reign in life. That grace might reign through righteousness. We became slaves of obedience and slaves of righteousness. Slaves of righteousness to holiness and in fact slaves of God. So throughout chapters 5 and 6 there has been a repeated theme of dominion. We belong to the rule of one or the other. To sin or God. To, uh, to, to sin or unrighteousness to death or life and so today we're going to look at that theme as it is uh, developed for us in verses uh, especially verses 15 through 23 and there's a question of that's, that's raised here of who is your master if there are these two dominions going on side by side and you're in one or the other which one are you in? 
You, you are a slave of one or the other. You're under the mastery, dominion, or the reign of one or the other. Which one is it for you, and how do you know? Well, for there to be a change of, of master, there are another, a number of other changes which are going on. The one we looked at last week was a change of mind that takes place, and we saw that in verses 11 through 14. Um, looking at, especially at verse 11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as we talked about last week, that reckoning had to do with, with how you think about something, your mindset, your view of something, that you count this to be true. It's, it's based on truth. Now, verse 8 says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe. So it's, our belief in the gospel, verse 9, knowing that Christ, and these are things that we know are true. These are biblical, theological truths upon which we rest our eternity and our daily lives. And based upon the truth of God's word, we reckon ourselves. We count this to be true of us. I am dead to sin, but alive to God. And so there's a change of mindset that goes on with the change of dominion. But now as we get into the, uh, the passage before us today, there's a change of obedience that we see starting in verse 15. In fact, let's, we'll read together verse 15 through 18 and then go back and make a few comments. Verse 15, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, the outline goes through the end of verse 23, but I don't think we're going to get that far today just to set your heart at ease before we jump into it because uh, in a little while you'll be wondering, how are we going to get through all this? Well, we'll finish next week. Uh, so here's, in addition to a change of mind or mindset or thinking, there's a change of of direction of life, a change of choices in life. In fact, a change of obedience is how Paul puts it in verses 15 and 16. Now, the question in verse 15 is based on what Paul had just said in verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Great, if, if I'm not under law, but I'm under grace, that means I'm free from sin. Does that also mean I'm free to sin? See, that was a question Paul was anticipating would be raised. We're free from sin, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin. Sin's dominion has been broken, free from sin. Well, great, am I free to sin? And, and that's the question Paul is answering, verse 15. Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Certainly not. No way. In, 
in giving his answer, not only does, does Paul say, certainly not, but he explains that you have two choices in verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? Whether sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. You have these two choices. You can give yourself to sin or you can give yourself to obedience. Those are your two choices. And Paul makes clear in this passage that even under grace, there are obligations of obedience that must be taken seriously. There's, there's no such thing as autonomy or self-rule in the Christian life. There's no such thing as freedom from all powers or influences. Either people are under the power of sin or they are under the power of God, one or the other. The question is not then whether you will have a master, but which master will you serve? What's your choice? There is no possibility of neutrality. No possibility of simple autonomy. God delivers us from sin and to obedience. So in that way, God's grace is both liberating and constraining. Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will make you free. But free to do what? Free then to live the truth. Not free to do just whatever you want because then that wouldn't be according to truth. Because if you know the truth, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. If you know Jesus, if you know the truth, you will live according to the truth, according to Christ. So verse 16 in some ways echoes verse 13. Just to remind you from last week, if you look back at verse 13, where we're given these uh, several imperatives, do not present your members as weapons of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves as being alive to God and your members as weapons of righteousness to God. Now see how he repeats that kind of thing in verse 16? Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves... Slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey. Now, we aren't used to thinking in terms of slavery in modern society, although slavery certainly still exists throughout this world in some horrendous fashions. But slavery in the ancient world was a common thing. Uh, it's estimated that in the time of the Roman Empire in which the book of Romans was being written, about a third of the people were slaves. In some of the cities, like Corinth, two-thirds of the population of Corinth were slaves. It had to do with Corinth being a port city and the kind of uh, trade and stuff that went on there. So slavery was certainly not unknown. It was uh, well-known there. If you weren't a slave, you probably knew lots of slaves or were a far, former slave, or you owned one. So to, to them to think in terms of slavery was 
was so commonplace, it, was, it would be like us thinking in terms today of having uh, an employer and an, an employee. Someone who's an employee, an employer, and he has employees. And we, would, we don't think different than that. So for us to think that we should break loose of that is not even, what? How? And that was how they looked at it back then. For some people, it was just, that was their life, their way of life. There were different levels of slavery uh, from some really horrendous conditions all the way up to being household servants who would be entrusted with uh, the master's whole possessions and would be basically like a manager, administrator, and, and could be well recompensed for that. But slavery was a, a common concept for them. It strikes us as a little bit strange to be thinking about presenting yourselves as a slave here because we just, we just don't think in those terms today. But, so we need to put ourselves back in their sandals a little bit. In fact, even back at this time, people would sometimes intentionally sell them slaves, themselves into slavery uh, in order to pay for a debt. And they would be a slave for a certain amount of time or years to pay off a debt. Um, one could even view the situation with Jacob and Laban similar to that. Jacob worked for Laban seven years for Rachel. He was like an indentured servant for seven years in order to win Rachel. When uh, the colonists came over to the new world, many came over as indentured slaves or servants and they would sell themselves sometimes even their families into this servanthood for a period of usually three to seven years in order to pay for their their passage and getting a new start in the new world um, so it's in that old way of thinking of slavery as something that you might present yourself to that Paul is addressing here. And Paul, I believe, wants us to realize here that slavery is not just a legal status. You're a slave or you're free. It's not just a, live, a legal status. It is a living experience. It's how you live as a slave or live as free. So Christians who are no longer slaves to sin must no longer live as slaves to sin. And that's the connection Paul is making. He just forcefully made in the previous passage uh, the statement that the dominion of sin is broken. Now he's saying, therefore, don't live like slaves to sin. It has no right to have mastery over you. Quit presenting yourself as slave to sin. So the freedom of the believer is not a freedom to do whatever one wants but the freedom at last to obey God willingly, gladly, from the heart. Now an interesting thing here is that this is a, a contrast in slavery of you are a slave to sin or you're a slave to, you would think you would say God. Verse 16. So do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves to whom you obey, whether to sin, presenting yourselves as a slave to sin, leading to death, or to obedience, leading to righteousness. And though we would expect 
Paul to say you present yourself as a slave to sin or you present yourself as a slave to God he kind of surprises us here with a different word in fact several times in this passage Paul changes up the expected wording to give us something different that that is kind of arresting for one thing we often jump to a conclusion that about what the answer is and like this we would we would think he would just say, you either present yourself to sin as your master or, or to God as your master. So who is your master? Um, and we would think that God would be the answer. I remember when my son Jason was uh, four years old, his Sunday school teacher came to me uh, with a problem, as was often the case back then. And uh, uh, she said, the, the problem with Jason is he answers every question. Being a proud pastorly father, I said, and what is wrong with that? Well, he answers every question the same way. Who fed the 5,000? I know, I know, Jesus. Right. Who healed the paralytic? I know, I know, Jesus. Who was swallowed by the whale? I know, I know, Jesus. <laughs> it didn't matter what the question was, the answer was Jesus. Well, you know, there is a spiritual lesson to that, if you think about it. But the, the problem is, and this, this happens with young kids and us as immature Christians, we jump to conclusions as to what the answer is. We think we already know as soon as the question is being raised, oh yeah, sin, you're, you are a slave to sin or to God. That's, those are your choices and that's it. Paul says something different here. Now look at verse 22. I want to jump down there for a second. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. So Paul at the end of the passage does get to the contrast of sin and God but he doesn't want us to go there yet back in verse 16. He purposely holds that conclusion off for a while to get us to focus on something else and that is obedience. Look at the emphasis on obedience in verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So you are presenting yourself to obedience. Obedience here then is seen as the opposite of sin. They are purposely juxtaposed sin and obedience because sin, by definition, is disobedience, isn't it? Sin is rebellion against God. And that's the point that Paul is wanting us to see. We are supposed to be under the dominion of God, the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to sin is to rebel against him. It is to live in disobedience to him. And so Paul is bringing out the need to obey. 
Secondly, sin is seen as a power. Notice throughout this passage in in chapter 5 and 6, we are told that sin reigns. Sin reigned in death. Sin reigns over people. Sin has dominion. Sin has power. But what is interesting is that here, obedience is also considered a power. Just like sin had power over your life, obedience will have power over your life. You can submit to obedience and it will have power. So why is it also considered a power? Well, because we are not meant to accept any abstract understanding of grace separated from concrete daily living. Grace is not just some ideal. Grace is not merely by which we are saved and our sins are forgiven. That's true, but it's more. Grace also involves power in which the mastery and dominion of sin are broken. And and verse 14, you are not under law, but under grace. Therefore, the power of obedience is available to you. That results in real life change. That results in obedience to God. As a believer, how, how do we show that we belong to God? How do we demonstrate that we know Him? That we are His, that He is our shepherd, that He is our Lord? How do we show that? The consistent answer of the New Testament is by obedience. Just to give you a couple of examples, Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. He who obeys my Father. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will obey me. How do we know? How do we show that we love him? It, it is through obedience. In this verse also, 16, Paul highlights and specifies the consequences of the respective slaveries. See, at the end of verse 16, it's which one are you going to pick? Whether of sin, which leads to death. That's the consequence of sin. Sin leads to death or Obedience leads to righteousness. Again, one would think that the pairing would be different, that it would be death or life, right? That sin leads to death and obedience leads to life because death and life are opposites. But that's not what Paul says. He interjects something else in contrast to death, and that is righteousness. Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Well, why righteousness instead of just saying life? Because that would be true too. Because the point in this passage is that it's not just about whether you have a life, but how you live that life. It is a life of righteousness. And for us, sometimes we are just satisfied to know I'm 
heaven bound. If I were to die today, would I be in the presence of God? Yes, because I believe in Jesus and I have life. Now I'll go do my thing. But if my life were to end today, I'd be with him. And Paul is saying, no, you've got it wrong. You're not supposed to just be thinking in terms of life. Yes, you have life and that's a gift from God, but how are you going to live this day in light of that life? You give yourself as, as a slave to obedience for righteousness, a life of righteousness. Well, um, just one more question before we leave this verse. How do we present ourselves? Notice that word present. We saw it in verse 13. Verse 13 said, Do not present your members as uh, weapons of unrighteousness, but present yourselves, and so forth. Verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves, you present yourselves slaves to obey? So how do you present yourself? What does it mean to present yourself? Well, let's suppose that your, your boss calls you into her office. Well, you show up. You present yourself. You have presented yourself to work that morning, hopefully on time. And by presenting yourself there, you are saying... I'm here to, to work to fulfill my duties, to, to do what I'm supposed to. Um, and so your boss calls you in. You go into her office. You, pre you present yourself before her. Here I am with the expectation of what do you want me to do? So you are presenting yourself with an open, open mind and thinking, I'm ready to obey. Tell me what you want me to do. And she says, well, I have this particular task for you to do uh, do this and this and that and if it's not immoral or illegal you say okay and you go do this and that and that but you have presented yourself to obey in the same way think about your daily life every day you are presenting yourself either to sin that you're going to obey sin as your master or you are going to present yourself to obey God leading to righteousness. If, if your boss called you in and you didn't show up, uh, you would probably not have that job very long, right? You, you don't have a choice. In this life, you don't have a choice. Every day you are presenting yourself to sin or to obedience. Well, in order for us to consistently present ourselves to obedience, which leads to righteousness, there's something else that has to happen. And the key for that is in verse 17. That is, there is a change of heart that has to take place. Verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Uh, this change is brought about by God. And so Paul begins this verse with, but God be thanked. There, there was a time in an unbeliever's life 
where an unbeliever had no choice but to obey sin. But now there is a choice. But God be thanked that though you were slaves to sin, God be thanked to him be all the glory because of the change of master, the change of dominion in your life. To God be the glory. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at verse 10 of chapter 5. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And so certainly in chapter 6 verse 17, Paul can say, but God be thanked because this, this obedience has been brought about by God. This change has led to obedience which leads to righteousness on the part of believers. This is something which is both a, something God does and we do. It's kind of like the idea of faith. When you first come to Christ, you exercise faith in him. But where does the faith come from? God supplies that. He even works in us to give us the faith to believe. He opens our heart to our sin and understanding of the truth of the gospel. And he, uh, by his spirit, enables us to believe. But we exercise faith. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Philippians 2, starting at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if we stopped there, we would, we would certainly have reason for fear and trembling. What do you mean work out your own salvation? Well, they've been obedient, both when Paul was there, even when he's not, and he's praising them for it. But look at verse 13. Look at the rest of the story here, verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God takes the initiative, is the idea. And God works in you, believer, he gives you the will to do it and the ability to do it. But he still asks you to obey. So God gives you everything you need, but you still have to present yourself. You present yourself as a slave to obedience and God does the work. And this is, this is what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 6. Go back to Romans 6.
But God be thanked that though you were slaves to sin, yet you obeyed from the heart. The, the change must be brought about by God because we were slaves of sin at one point. And we could not break our own shackles. We couldn't break out of our own prison. God had to crush the dominion of sin in our life and deliver us to himself. We were unable as slaves to sin. But God be thanked that he brought it about. Now, so the change is brought about by God. And next, the change is from the heart. God be thanked that though you were slaves to sin, slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart. Now, notice um, these three things. The, the mind in verse 11... Likewise, you also reckon yourselves, and the reckoning has to do with the mind, your mindset. The mind in verse 11. The will in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your body. And verse 16. Um, who you present yourselves. It has to do with your will. What are you going to do? So it's your mind and your will, and now your heart in verse 17. From the heart, you, you obeyed from the heart means, speaks of the depth of the believer's commitment. No, no superficial obedience will do. No half-hearted commitment will suffice. No partial allegiance to the gospel. People come into the kingdom of light willingly and glad-hearted. They obey from the heart that form of doctrine. Like, um, like a bride coming down the aisle for her wedding. And uh, people are standing up and watching her. And everyone's smiling. And the bridesmaids are up here. And just all happy. And no one gets the sense that, oh, she has to do this. Poor thing. I mean, no one ever thinks that. Uh, it's like that with coming into the kingdom. God doesn't force people into the kingdom of light. We come glad-hearted. We, we come thankful that we have been delivered from the dominion of sin. The New Testament presents the twin ideas of faith in Christ as Savior and commitment to Christ as Lord those twin ideas are inseparable and in fact they are mutually interpreting one that helps to explain the other faith in Christ as Savior and commitment to Christ as Lord we come to him from the heart there's a change a heart change that happens in coming to him and the change is about truth Changes about truth. Verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart. What did you obey from the heart? That form of doctrine or teaching to which you were delivered. That form of doctrine. The change is about truth. Uh, just several things here about that phrase. It is 
to which you were delivered. You obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. The word delivered can also be translated handed over. And it was a, a common uh, phrase used in the transfer of property, including the transfer of slaves from one master to another master. The, the slave was handed over. The slave was bought and delivered. That's the terminology here. You obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were handed over, delivered. There was a change of master. And this has a, a double application. You were delivered from sin and death and you were delivered to obedience and righteousness and life and God. You obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. You were handed over to this. Now notice the unusual wording the, the teaching or doctrine is not here something that was delivered to us. Though Paul makes that point repeatedly in his epistles that uh, protect this doctrine which was handed down to you, which was delivered to you, and pass it on to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also, the doctrine which is delivered to you. But that's not what Paul is saying here. It is not the doctrine that was delivered to us, but that we were delivered to the doctrine. You see that? that? That you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were handed over. That's an unusual but intentional way of saying that when one becomes a Christian, one is placed under the authority of truth under the authority of scripture generally and the gospel specifically now just a couple more things to explain about that God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now he says that form of doctrine. He could have just said you were uh, you obeyed from the heart that doctrine to which you were delivered. Why does he use the word form? Could be translated that pattern of doctrine. It could be translated that standard of teaching instead of just teaching. Why does he use, add the word form? Well, John MacArthur has, a, a, I think, a reasonable explanation of this. He says it's, it's as if a Christian is kind of melted it down and poured into a mold that looks like Christ and, you are, and the doctrine of Christ, and you are poured into this mold and molded to be like Christ. And that's why later on in Romans 12, 2, Paul says, uh, don't be... Uh, changed or formed by the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind don't let the world mold you into its own pattern so I think MacArthur has a point there but I see something perhaps a little bit different in this based specifically on the word form that's translated form or pattern it is the Greek word tupos T-U-P-O-S where we get the word type 
Now, type means a pattern or form. And um, in the olden days, back when I was a kid, we, we had marvelous machines called typewriters. Can you see this? This is, uh, this is probably about 80 years old, but it still works. And marvelous thing here, you push down a button and an arm comes up and strikes the paper, or strikes an ink um, ribbon, and then which strikes the paper and leaves an imprint on the paper. And th this is called a what? No, no, I mean the whole thing is a tupas writer, a type writer. And the idea is that it forms the letters on the paper exactly as the, the keys are. So the type is something which, which leaves its imprint. The typewriter leaves an imprint on the page of what you uh, intend to type. Now, look at Jeremiah 31. Imagine how long it took to do a text message back then. <laughs> Jeremiah 31. Well, let's start at verse 33. God is giving the prophet Jeremiah a vision into the future and into what would one day be called the new covenant. The new covenant that Christ inaugurated. Jeremiah 31 starting at verse 33 says. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And so forth. But notice in verse 33, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I believe that's what Paul is referring to in Romans 6, 17, when you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, that tupos, that type of doctrine, that imprint of doctrine on your heart, you obeyed. When God revealed his new covenant to you, that there is salvation in Christ, you came under the dominion of Christ. Um, I think this is as far as we can go today. We'll pick up with verse, we get, uh, well, continue on with verse 17 next week and uh, number four. But for now, 
think the challenge before us is to look at our life as, as not just one of which kingdom are you in and which master are you under, but does your life show that? Are you presenting yourself purposefully to the Lord of glory saying, uh, here I am, I'm standing before you, like standing before your boss in their office, I'm standing before your throne, I am here, O Lord, to do your will. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, first of all, that you have broken the chain, the shackle of sin and death by which we were bound, that you have set us free. And God, we're grateful that we're not free simply to follow our own pernicious ways, for surely we would quickly go astray. But we are now free to follow you, to obey you, to know what it means to present ourselves to obedience and righteousness and to our Lord and Savior. Lord, may you work in our lives that marvelous work by which you form us and make us into the image of Christ. Lord, I pray for each person here. You know the heart of each individual and things which are troubling things by which we are convicted, concerned. And Lord, we do hand them all over to you. We trust for your faithful working and thank you even now for it. May you receive all the glory, but God be thanked, as Paul said, in Jesus' name, amen.